0: Kids, you are dismissed for children's church, so you can make your way to the back. Let me uh, just say a word of thanks to the congregation for praying for Paul and I as we traveled. It was a refreshing time to uh, spend time with kids and grandkids, and we had a tremendous time on Cape Cod. Um, I was telling Sunday school class one of the highlights for me was seeing my son lead in his church and. Uh, seeing how how God is using him to uh, shepherd the church body there. And uh, that's that's very fulfilling and very thankful to God for what he's doing in his life and in the life of the church that Rob serves in. Let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're looking at verses 11 through 16. You know, as we come to this text, we find... Timothy being encouraged by the Apostle Paul in the first part of the fourth chapter to make sure that he takes his stand against false teaching, to make sure that he stays true to the Word, that he doesn't fall for myths and old wives' tales, but that he goes to the source of God's Word and that he remains faithful to God's teaching. And this is such an important reminder, not only for Timothy, but for all of us. What we're going to see this morning as we continue our series on the healthy church is a healthy church has spiritually mature people who lead. And what we find from Paul as he communicates with Timothy are seven traits that Timothy need to, needed to develop and ensure that were a part of his life as he led in the important responsibility of leading the church at Ephesus. So please look in your Bibles with me, and we're going to look at both public responsibilities and private responsibilities that will somehow develop these traits. That's what we want to see. Let's look at the 11th verse. And as we come to the 11th verse, one of the public responsibilities that God's spiritually mature leader should evidence is the ability to remain true to God's Word. Verse 11 very simply says, command and teach these things. Now what's fascinating about this verse is that Paul is commanding Timothy to command. Timothy was sent to Ephesus as Paul's representative. He was there to speak on behalf of the Apostle as he was working with this fledgling church. And so Timothy had the responsibility of carrying God's commands, given to Paul and then given to Timothy, and then give those to the church. When we make commands, it's never on our authority when we're spiritual leaders. It should be on the authority of God's Word. And this is what Timothy was doing. He was being charged to share with the church body the very commands of God. And the authority behind it wasn't Paul, it wasn't Timothy, it was God himself. And we need to understand that. God's word isn't a collection of suggestions. It isn't a collection of ideas. God has very specific things that he wants us to do as believers And in no uncertain terms, he communicates those things to us. And we need to view the authority of God's word as an immediate authority in our lives. And we need to unapologetically share what God's word has to say on any given situation. This is what Timothy was commanded to do. He was to command the people at Ephesus concerning these things. But not only was he to command, he was also to teach. Now, when we look at teaching, a big question, when does teaching take place? And by when, I don't mean at 10.30 on Sunday morning where we start at 10.30 sharp and end at 11 o'clock dull. What I'm talking about is the idea that teaching takes place not only when a person is able to just parrot back what has been said but when they grasp the meaning of what has been said and it has influenced their lives. That's when teaching really takes place. That's when we know that our teaching has been successful. When we see someone respond to what has been shared and it is life-altering, life-changing, then we know that true teaching has taken place. Now, there are roadblocks to teaching. Maybe the person who is communicating isn't communicating clear enough. Maybe the person who is communicating has infused some of their own ideas into the mix and it's somehow diluted the teaching. Or maybe the person who is listening to the teaching isn't picking up what's being put down. Maybe they're distracted. Maybe they're resistant. Maybe they're lackadaisical about what they hear. Any number of things can contribute to a breakdown in what the Scripture calls teaching. James gave us this. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. What a great illustration, isn't that? When we're confronted with the Word of God, what do we do with it? Do we look at it and say, yeah, that probably applies to me. Oh, well. And then walk away. Or do we look at it and say, you know, this has something to say to something in my life that needs to be changed. and Because I understand that God is commanding this, I will respond. And I will do what God says. Not because the pastor said it, Not because other people expect me to do it. It's because God said it. So I will respond. That's when real teaching takes place. So, what Timothy was to do was to continuously command these things and teach these things. That's the way it's framed in the original language. Not an isolated one shot deal where I'm telling you this and I'm teaching you this, but a consistency. Faithful to the word. Constantly sharing with the church body the teachings of God. That's one of the responsibilities of a faithful leader. There to remain faithful to these things. There are times when commanding and teaching become unpopular. People respond to it with resistance. And there's the temptation that if I continue in these things, I'll lose people. I'll have people mad at me. I'll have people... Uh, somehow thinking that I'm being judgy by sharing what God says, and we'll back away. But there's the responsibility for the mature believer, the mature leader, to stay the course, to continue in these things, to make sure that they are faithful to do what God calls them to do. Another trait. We're to represent what it is to be spiritually mature. You know, teaching not only takes place by taking the Word of God and sharing important information, but I believe that some of the most important lessons that we can teach are those that we model for other people. Some people learn by words, some people learn by visualization. They need to see it fleshed out, lived out. And that's what we find as we come to verse 12. Paul begins verse 12 by talking about a roadblock that could have perhaps affected the way Timothy would be an example. Notice what it says. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. This verse says a mouthful, doesn't it? There are those who will use external things to judge God's servants, In Timothy's case, it was his youth. But here's the fascinating thing about Timothy's youth. When many of us here let no one look down on you because you are young, we think in terms of our culture. And in our culture, young might mean a person in their teens, perhaps even a person in their early 20s. That's what's really young to us. During the first century... Young could have been as much as in the mid to late 30s that people in that culture would have looked at one who was that age and said, they're young. Isn't it amazing how we judge on these external things? Person who's young, you're still wet behind the ears. Person who's old, you've lost it, man. You're out of touch. You don't have a clue. There's about a 10-year window in our culture, where people are effective, right? It's ridiculous. And yet we keep setting those external standards. What we need to understand is no one should be able to judge us by our chronological age. What we're to do is set an example of what it is to be spiritually mature, what it is to be godly by the way, we conduct ourselves. That's what sets us apart as spiritually mature. I have known people who are very young who have evidenced tremendous spiritual maturity. And unfortunately, I've known people who are very old who have demonstrated tremendous spiritual immaturity. Chronology doesn't have as much to do with it as your desire to follow and serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we find here in this charge to Timothy. When he tells him not to let anyone look down on him, he goes on to talk about how to set a godly example. And I want us to look carefully at this. Notice he says, set an example for believers. So that's the overall guide point that we're to look at. And then he talks about areas of life where we will demonstrate that maturity. Look at what heads the list. If you really want to demonstrate spiritual maturity, if you really want to set an example, where do we begin? With our mouth. With our speech. I don't want to show hands on this one, but how many of you got in trouble this week for something you said? How many of you should have gotten into trouble for something you said, (laughs) but maybe you didn't get caught? It is so difficult to not fall into the trap of gossip, slander, bragging about ourselves, running other people down, elevating ourselves while deflating someone else. Our mouths are so difficult to control. James brought this out. Now, many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And then after talking about being judged more strictly, what does he immediately do? He goes into our speech. We all stumble in many ways if anyone is never at fault in what he says. He is a perfect. Now, remember perfect means mature. He is a mature man able to keep his whole body in check. Look, if you want to set an example in your speech of spiritual maturity, what you don't say is just as important as what you do say. What you don't listen to is just as important as what you listen to. As believers, if we want to set an example, we'd better have gracious, kind, truthful mouths. That's the bottom line. Look at what else he's to set an example in in life Now the way this could be translated is more in conduct. And the idea is, look, as I said an example, I want people to look at the way I conduct myself and say there is a person who conducts themselves in line with God's word. I'm not to teach one thing and live another. People detest hypocrisy. They don't want to see a duplicitous teacher. They want to see someone who lives consistently the truths that they teach. So what Paul is telling Timothy, and by expansion, what he's telling all of us is, look, when we teach something, live it out. Be an example in your conduct. Something else in love. We can talk about love. We can encourage people to love. But do I demonstrate love in the way I interact with other people? Do I forgive them or do I nurse a grudge? That's a tough one, isn't it? Do I unconditionally love them even when they haven't loved me back? Do I love my enemies? Am I able to reach out and graciously treat the person who has abused or misused me? Those are ways that we put feet to the biblical command to love one another. Isn't it easy to love people who are lovable? I'm so thankful I'm one of those people that are lovable. (laughs) Isn't that the way we view ourselves? I'm easy to love. It's everybody else that has the problem, right? God wants us to be an example in love. And listen. When you demonstrate before others the ability to reach out in love and compassion to someone that they know has mistreated you, you're doing what God calls you to do. That's being a godly example of love. What about faith? How are we a godly example of faith? Faith depends on God and then acts on that dependence. When we look at Hebrews chapter 12, and we're not going to turn there, but the entire chapter is dedicated to the idea of those who were faithful, those who evidenced faith, and their faith was demonstrated by their actions. God wants us to have a faith that is fully involved, that has activity, that depends on God. When I look at something and I see I don't think I can work this out on a human level, but I'll give it to God, and then I keep taking it back, have I evidenced faith? No. When I say that I'm going to trust God in a matter and then refuse to do so, have I evidenced faith? No. Faith moves us toward God. Finally, Paul tells Timothy to set an example in purity. Why is it important for spiritually mature people to remain pure? All of us know the heartbreak of seeing a leader who has fallen into sexual sin. People that have had tremendous ministries have fallen prey to sexual sin. Satan works overtime on leaders, And not only does it hurt the work and the ministry of the individual, it crushes the church. So, what God is telling Timothy through the Apostle Paul make sure that you set an example in purity. Make sure that you have an impeccable purity before the church body. So important that leaders take that to heart we come to verse 13, we see another trait, another responsibility that's to be done publicly. And that's this, we're to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures, to preaching, and to teaching. Timothy had an important responsibility, and I find it interesting in this list of traits. The Word is mentioned twice. Verse 11, command and teach. Verse 13, once again, the public reading of Scripture, preaching and teaching. Such an emphasis on the Word of God. I'm alarmed by a trend that I see in many churches today where the Word of God is touched upon, mentioned, but not preached, not focused on. One of our values as a church body is to take the Word of God and teach it and share it because our recognition is real growth comes from interacting with God's Word. It's the very Word of God. So in the first century... The responsibility of reading the Scripture. Understand that while we have multiple copies of the Scripture, I probably have 60 copies of the Scripture right in my pocket because I have a cell phone that has 60 translations of God's Word. We have accessibility to the Scripture that few generations before us have had. But in the first century... Most people didn't have a personal copy of God's Word, so the public reading of Scripture was important. We follow this principle in the way that we format our worship service. We have someone give attention to the public reading of God's Word because we believe that's important and because we believe it's biblical. So we respond to this apostolic command and we integrate that into our worship service. Something else, we're responsible for preaching. Now, what is the difference between preaching and teaching? Preaching carries with it the idea of taking God's Word and applying it to specific life situations. It's that application aspect. A lot of times we think of preaching as far as the enthusiasm level that a person has. But it's not. It's the content Enthusiasm helps, but content changes lives. If you go away from a service saying, wow, I'm pumped. I have no idea what about, but I'm pumped. You know, what have you accomplished? Right? There's nothing there. But if you go away from a service saying, man, God spoke to me about this. Something truly has been accomplished. It's life-changing. God wants preaching and teaching to fulfill that kind of role in the life of a church, in a healthy church. There is preaching, there is teaching that takes place. And people respond to it. But let me tell you something. For Timothy, understand that he was in a difficult situation. He was in the church at Ephesus where there were personality problems, There were a hundred fires that Timothy had to put out during the course of his week. Timothy faced false teachers who were coming in and saying, you know, I know Timothy taught this, and I know Paul taught this, but let me tell you what the Bible really means. And so there were false teachers that were coming in and confusing people. So Timothy had this huge task, and in addition to putting out those hundred fires, he had the responsibility of God's word. And guess which one is to take priority? God's Word. An article was written a number of years ago called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And in that article, it talked about how the hundred emergencies that pop up during the week should never take our eyes off of the prize, the most important thing that we do. For Paul, as he was teaching Timothy, he said, teach the Word. Give attention to the public reading of the word. Keep the word of God before the people. That's your main thing. Keep it, the main thing. And you know it takes work. In 2 Timothy, Paul would write to Timothy again. And he would say this, Make every effort to present yourself before God as a proven worker who does not need to be ashamed Teaching the message of truth accurately. That's the goal of the servant of God as he teaches. To study the word of God. To pour yourself into the scripture. And to teach it accurately. You know, if there's one thing that I would ask you to pray for me as a pastor with the teaching responsibility, primary teaching responsibility here at Oakland Bible Church... That's what I would ask. Pray that I will spend time in God's word and that I will teach it accurately. That's my deepest desire, and that's what I'm to fully devote myself to. And that's what you as a church body can pray for all of the leaders concerning that we're faithful to God's word. That's what God calls us to. Another characteristic, publicly, rely on the spiritual gift you are given. As Paul continues to speak to Timothy about these important responsibilities, verse 14 reminds him that he is not to neglect his gift. And the word gift there is spiritual gift. What he's saying to him is, stop neglecting your spiritual gift. Listen, all believers are given a spiritual gift. And we can neglect them. We can set them aside. We can get distracted. We can get discouraged. We can allow external things to keep us from doing what God has uniquely and specifically gifted us to do. Here, the Word of God is saying to Timothy, stop neglecting it. And that raises a big question, doesn't it? Why did he come to the place to where he started neglecting it? Listen, when you are in leadership, sometimes it's tempting to check out because of all of the responsibilities around you. And I'm, I'm not talking because right now I'm thinking about checking out, okay? Nobody go there. <laughs> but what I'm talking about is sometimes it's, it's, it's easy to just set those things aside and get distracted, and get discouraged, and come to the place where you look and you just say, you know, what's the use? Maybe Timothy was there. For four chapters, he'd been beaten up. We can see some of the things that were going on in the church at Ephesus. There were significant and severe problems. And it had brought Timothy to the place to where he needed to be reminded, preach the word, and stop neglecting your spiritual gift. In other words, be steadfast. Stay the course. Make sure that you're fulfilling what God has called you to do. That's the idea. So in this passage, when Timothy is told, do not neglect your spiritual gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you, Timothy was given very specific affirmation and confirmation that he had a particular spiritual gift. I believe it was probably the spiritual gift of teaching, and what he was reminded to do was to keep using it. Don't shrink back. Don't fall prey to fear. Stand firm. Stay the course. You know, I think there's a message for all of us in this. If you're a believer, you're going to face problems. If you're a church, you're going to face problems. From the first century to today, believers have faced problems. The big question is, what do we do when we get knocked down? And the answer ought to be, by the strength of God and by the grace of God, I get back up and I continue to serve. I don't neglect the things that God has given me to do. That's my encouragement to you. Maybe you're beaten down by what you feel going on in your family. Maybe you're beaten down by what you've experienced in the workplace. Maybe you're hurt by other people, even in the church body. Don't neglect your spiritual gift. Stand firm. Continue in it. This is what God calls us to do. If we're to be faithful, and if we're to see things really work, This is what we must do. And this is what Paul was reminding Timothy of. But then as we continue and we come to verse 15, we find those private responsibilities. And let me give you a word of encouragement. Verses 15 and 16 aren't near as long as the first section. So let's look at what he says. The public things we've looked at. Teaching. Setting an example. Devoting yourself to the Word not neglecting your spiritual gift. These need to be things that are observed by the church body around us. But there are some things that need to be done privately so that we can pull those off. And that's what we find in verses 15 and 16. First requirement, we need to readily strive toward spiritual growth. Look at verse 15 Be diligent in these matters. It's also translated, take great pains. Look, doing these public things takes private strength. If the only time that I share the Word is when I get up in front of the church body, I'm in trouble. I'd better be studying the Word of God for myself and not just when I'm there to produce for other people but a private time with God. That's what it means to be diligent in the Word and in those other matters. And it's something that requires a tremendous investment of time and energy. Listen, the Christian life is not easy. And developing spiritual maturity is not easy. I wish there were an easy button that you could punch like on the commercial and instant spiritual maturity, but it's not there. It comes through pain, struggle, dependence on God, failure, and then victory. And it requires diligence. We have to stay the course. We have to stand strong in these matters. We have to give ourselves wholly to them. Have you guys ever seen a job that somebody did kind of half-heartedly? I've seen some construction attempts where people have tried to put something together and you could tell that they just didn't either know what they were doing or care what they were doing because slipshod work was done. And what's the result? Whatever they put together falls apart, Right? It may not be immediately, but eventually it falls apart. You know, I think there's a great parallel between that and our spiritual lives. We can be sloppy in our spiritual lives, not devoting ourselves wholly to them. And we can go along with the appearance of being functional. And people can look at us and say, wow, that person's got it together. But if we're doing it half heartedly, you know what's going to eventually happen? It falls apart. God wants us to be people who devote ourselves to these things wholly, completely, so that we can evidence strength and dependence on God. I love what Paul said to the Philippian church where he said this, My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out Your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there is a human responsibility in working out our salvation. Notice he doesn't say working for your salvation, but working out your salvation. We never earn our salvation. What we do is we are saved and salvation itself works through us. And our cooperation will greatly enhance the work of salvation that is taking place in us. And that's where the 13th verse comes in. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. The idea is this. I move in the direction that God calls me to move and God empowers me to follow through and to continue. It's God and me. And as I depend on God and step out in faith and move in the direction that God would have me go, God empowers me to do what he has called me to do. Devote yourself wholly to developing spiritual maturity and God sees to its success. So when he's saying to Timothy here in this 15th verse, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. He's telling us the importance of growing in these things. And listen, it's measurable. Because look at the last part of that 15th verse so that everyone may see your progress. When I am maturing spiritually, it's not a secret. People see it. And if I want to set an example before others, before God, I have to do the internal work of dependence on God, devoting myself to these things that God might develop them in me. Very important that we understand that. Look at verse 16. Another important part of our responsibility privately. Regularly examine your life and doctrine. I love that first sentence of the 16th verse. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. What we're being called to do is self-evaluation. I am to examine Myself. And how do I do that? The word of God. How do I come alongside it and measure up? I need to ask myself the hard questions. I need to be brutally honest. Maybe I even need to go to someone else where I have a blind spot that I trust and say, I want you to honestly share with me What do you think about this situation in my life? Will you please be brutally honest with me and tell me? That accountability, that's an important thing. We all have those blind spots that we just don't want to acknowledge that we have. God is calling us to watch our lives, to examine them carefully, and then also our doctrine. Again, we measure our doctrine by comparing it to the Word of God. And let me tell you something. Watching your doctrine not only talks about am I theologically accurate, but also am I consistent with what I teach? Doctrine isn't just rambling off theological words. It's evidenced by our theological lives Am I living as though I believe God is my Lord? Am I living in a way that I trust God? Or am I taking things and holding on to them with tightly closed hands rather than holding them up to God with an open hand and saying, this is yours, do with it as you will? Those are things that we need to ask ourselves, examine ourselves in in order to be who we need to be as spiritual leaders. And then the last part of this passage, the last part of the 16th verse. You know, Timothy has more passages that are challenging passages, and this is one of them. Look at the last part. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save yourself and your hearers. And when we come to that text, if I looked at this first blush without the context of the rest of Scripture, you know what my takeaway would be? That if I persevere in these things, that I will earn my salvation. Is that what the Word of God is saying? And I would submit to you absolutely not. What we need to understand is words are determined by context, their meaning. Example, this past evening, I cooked some pasta in a pot. This past evening, I saw a guy in dreadlocks smoking pot. Okay? Pot is word used in both of those contexts, right? But they mean radically different things, correct? What determined its meaning? The context. So I think that's what we have to do here. We have to look and we have to say, does saved always refer to our eternal salvation? And I would submit to you, no. We've encountered this already in 1 Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 15, it said that women would be saved through their childbirth. Now, no one believes that that means that a woman has to have a baby to be saved eternally. All right? Barren women... Or single women would have a very difficult time fulfilling that. We know it doesn't mean that by the context. And I would submit to you that being saved here has very much the same idea of being delivered. Here's the idea the first part of the fourth chapter begins with God speaking to Timothy about the dangers of doctrines taught by demons. The only way you can be saved from falling prey to those false teachings is by dependence on God's Word. You're delivered from falling prey as you depend on God's Word and God's truth, not an eternal salvation. Listen, the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, your eternal destination is settled. A little bit later, in 2 Timothy, Paul would give this testimony. I am not ashamed because, now look at this, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. In other words, Paul's salvation was set Because God had the responsibility of seeing him through. He entrusted his eternal destiny to God. God, in turn, is faithful to see him delivered to the end. Perseverance is an evidence of salvation. It is not a cause of salvation. So when Paul says here, persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and others. He can't mean eternal destiny. It would be contradictory to what he says in other passages. Also, look at the last part of this 16th verse. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself. Now look at this and your hearers. Does my perseverance affect someone else's salvation? Now I've heard it interpreted before. That the idea is, well, it will lead them to more of a chance to want to be saved if I'm consistent. But that's not what the verse is saying. It's saying, if you persevere, then you will save yourself and others. It's not saying lead them to salvation, it's saying actually save them. What we need to understand is there's only one person who saves that's Jesus. I don't save myself, I don't save others. To me, the more compelling interpretation of this passage is it delivers me from falling prey to false teaching. Now, here's the big question. Can a believer get confused and fall prey to false teaching? And I would submit to you absolutely yes. And here's some spiritual proof. The book of Galatians. The church of the Galatians had a horrible problem with false teachers And they were telling them they had to go back into Old Testament law. The men had to be circumcised. They had to become Jews before they could become believers. That was the teaching. And I want you to look carefully at what Paul writes to the Galatians. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now, can a non-Christian, a non-believer receive the Spirit? of God. No. So he's obviously speaking to Christians, right? And there was confusion on their part. Then it goes on and it says in verse 3, Are you so foolish after beginning in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? So beginning in the Spirit. Again, salvation. You might notice the points I want to emphasize are in gold. (laughs) Then it goes on to say this in verse 4. Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? What he's doing is establishing with these confused believers that it's not the law that saves you, it is your faith in the gospel, the true gospel that saves you. So yes, believers can get confused and off track When they sit under false teaching. So what Paul is telling Timothy in this passage is crystal clear. When you persevere in being diligent in God's word, in teaching it, in commanding it as you're supposed to, you will deliver yourself from falling prey to the false teachers that are prevalent in the church at Ephesus, and you will deliver others from falling prey to it as well. Here's the thing great deal of responsibility in spiritual leadership all of us should be moving toward the traits that we looked into this morning but all of us need to uphold the spiritual leaders of our church and other churches with prayer that these things will be part of their lives we want to grow one of our values as a church body is not only teaching God's Word, but moving people along in their spiritual growth. That's vital to us. We want to see us as a church body moving forward in our maturity and in our growth. And so that's my encouragement to you this morning. Make that a prayer for Oakland Bible Church. God can and will do it. God wants these things for us, We need to petition him faithfully and consistently to see these things brought about in our church body. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text.